You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. podcast. I'm your host, Erica Lance. First, don't forget to like and subscribe. I've started saying that because I wasn't saying it before and we need that. And if you would love to write a review, we'd love to hear it. Also, if you are an author that wants to be on the podcast or there's an author you'd like to hear us interview on the podcast, feel free to email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. No hate mail. Hashtag no hate mail. Okay, cool. (laughs) Our um, My amazing co-host today in full regalia. You guys, if you're listening, you have to get the YouTube episode of this because she's outdoing everyone on here is Danielle Orsino. So thank you for being here. And then our guest of honor is Julian Becca. Okay, guys, let's talk about what we're drinking. I'm super fancy in my drink today, which I feel good about since I didn't dress up like Danielle did. But I have sparkling sangria and I put blueberries and raspberries in it. Since we're day drinking, I decided to be fancy. I also have my grapefruit Pellegrino. So super fancy, just across the board. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yes. So Danielle, what are you drinking? I I went with my little like wine spritzer. I got my barefoot red Moscato and then I put it in my goblet, my unicorn goblet to go with the outfit. So So I am all done up. It's amazing. Amazing. Definitely (laughs) watch YouTube of this. Julian, because I know you can top that. no way that we're ever going to tell that um what are you drinking so i'm drinking um it's a it's a a tennessee beer called uh, tiny bomb and it is a memphis-based brewery called wise acre and uh, i'm personally a huge fan of of microbreweries and and supporting local beer Um, and so it's a nice crisp uh pilsner um it's really a good summer beer um, and, um, yeah, I mean, with the kind of summer that we've been having, you know, in, in the South and in the mid South, um, it's definitely a refreshing, uh, drink. So this is, this was definitely a no brainer for me on a, on a hot day like today. Very nice. Cool. Awesome. I agree. Which leads to our sponsor today is Skunk Brother Spirits. DWA10 is the coupon code. Check out their website. They have amazing stuff and they are local veteran owned and family owned their grandfather was a moonshiner so yay with this. yeah exactly okay julian for anyone who doesn't know who you are what do you write yeah so i write uh, speculative oh. fiction for mm-hmm. for young adults um and my my approach to writing is is very much you know i, I love to write in the subgenre that i love to read um, and, you know, obviously writers are, are readers first. Um, and so that subgenre was always the one that I gravitated toward the most. Um, and I just, what, what's great about YA is that you can, um, you can really play in a lot of different sandboxes and, and the YA readership is, you know, is, is pretty faithful. So, you know, you could 
you could write everything from, you know, coming of age, found family stories like John Green's Looking for Alaska, um, you know, to, you know, Brandon Sanderson, you know, space operatic stories like his, you know, Skyward uh, series, um, and really everything in between. So for me specifically, I write, um, it, it's really kind of like a cocktail of, of different subgenres. And so with my debut, uh, The Memory Index, um, I, I definitely took that approach to heart. And so um, just a little bit of background, uh, you know, my story and, and how I got into writing. I'm a first-generation um, Mexican-American, uh, first-generation college graduate, and I moved to rural Tennessee uh, when I was 12 or 13 years old, and I had a really interesting um, childhood because my parents, um, who are, you know, bo both Mexicans and, you know, my mom, she, she immigrated from Mexico when she was young, and, um, you know, they, they were just very... Um, adamant that we were going to speak English exclusively. They didn't want to teach us Spanish. Um, oh, wow. They feared that maybe, you know, it would hold us back academically. And so they were very, very adamant. You, you guys are going to speak English. It's, it's, we're in America, you're going to speak English. Um, but then interestingly, when we moved to rural Tennessee, I, I quickly found that, you know, in the town that we were living in, there weren't a whole lot of kids, really any, that looked like me. Um, and so most of the friends that I made were white, but I had this really, um, I don't know, it was kind of like a, a, an identity crisis where I couldn't really fully embrace my heritage because I didn't speak Spanish, but then I never really felt like I completely fit in with my friends because I looked different. And so I always sort of straddled this line and didn't really feel like I, I was ever fully accepted. Um, and so writing became an escape for me. It, it you know, I tell people it's how I made sense of my messes. It's how I, you know, processed. Um, and so from a very early age, I, I really, really found a lot of um, safety in storytelling. And so for a long time, I thought I was going to take that skill and, you know, uh, pursue screenwriting, maybe move back to California, you know, maybe go to like a UCLA or a USC and um, maybe one day, you know, work in film. But as I got older and as I, you know, went into college and, and, you know, started to take it a little bit more seriously, I quickly found that with filmmaking, you're relying on a lot of different people, a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of moving pieces, but with the, the novel medium, the novel writing medium, it's really just you and a blank page. And so that really excited me. Um, and so I, I just, I just really threw myself into it and started um, in, in, it was, I guess, around 2011, 2012, when I started taking uh, novel writing a lot more seriously and um, started self-publishing at first. Um, Amazon had create space at the time. Um, and I, I think it's just called Amazon publishing now, but at the time it was create space where you could basically just do print on demand. Um, and so, you know, that really excited me. Oh, I can tell a story from start to finish, figure out all the logistics, get it distributed and get it into readers' hands quickly. Um, and so I've really found my home in, in novel writing. Um, so to bring that full circle with my debut, The Memory Index, I definitely brought a lot of my childhood experiences of you know, navigating the South as, as a, as a Mexican-American um, I really brought that into the main character, uh, Freya Izquierdo. Um, but then, of course, it's it's speculative fiction, you know. So it takes place in a reimagined 1980s where there's this enigmatic sort of plague-like phenomenon called memory killer, 
and it's um, you know humanity is is dealing with rapid memory loss, and so um, there's this there's this corporation called Memory Frontier. They're like the Skynet of the book. Um, they announce that they have groundbreaking technology that's going to change you know humanity, mankind's fight with memory loss, but they have to trial the tech first. And so they they lottery 500 uh, you know students from across the country and send them to a boarding school in rural Tennessee um, to trial the tech. And of course, once Freya and her friends arrive, they quickly find that not everything is as it seems. Questions and you know um, uncertainty is around every corner. So um, that's uh, the fire hose sort of you know explanation or answer to your question. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. So let's let's go back. We're going to Scooby Doo back a little bit though to the first book you actually published. What was that? So um, in two, I think it was 2000, 2011 or two thousand twelve. I self published a middle grade story. Uh, called Capernaum. And um, this was again through Create Space. So it was print on demand, but then there was also an ebook version of it available. Um, and the this was fun because this um, there is one protagonist, there's one main character, Franklin, but I definitely took the sort of Goonies and Sandlot approach where it's really an ensemble story. So there's multiple characters. Um, and this one was um, fantasy sci-fi, um, and it was um, basically I imagined this not too distant future where the Earth and uh, you know has frozen, or excuse me, the Sun and Moon have frozen in orbit, um, and so, or is it no? The Earth has has fro has frozen in orbit, and so the Sun is sort of locked uh, in, is fixed in the sky, and so. Um, there's these obviously huge, um, you know, ripple effects from that. Um, and so I was just really fascinated with this idea of taking these, you know, these young kids, these young characters and putting them in a high stakes situation like that. Um, and then of course the heart of the story is the main character's sister goes missing. Um, and that's one of the things that I love about science fiction, fantasy, is those genres are really just a vehicle for unpacking the human condition and, and you know, themes um, that are, you know, uh, relatable and that can resonate to, you know, to readers. Um, so I, I try to keep that in mind with, with, my, with my stories when I'm writing, that the event or the circumstance in the story, the catalyst, while it's fun and it should be interesting, it's really just um, second, it, it should be secondary or tertiary to the, the heart of your story. What's the actual heart of your story? That makes sense. How many books did you self-publish? So I self-published five. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I self-published five. Um, but but he, here's the thing. I I always feel like I have to, you know, um, clarify that. I, I didn't have kids at the time. We didn't have a mortgage at the time. I was in a position where I could work uh, part-time at a bookstore. Um, and so I was really, I feel like, blessed and, and sort of set up to be to be able to actually do that. Um, I know so many people write in the margins of life. Not everybody gets that opportunity to quit their desk job and just go work, you know, part-time as a bookseller and then, you know, work on your stories. So I feel like I was really blessed and really positioned to, to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, five, five stories, five novels, they're all YA middle grade. Um, and that was a really, I feel like that in a lot of ways was kind of like a, um, 
gosh, I don't know, like a, like a workshop of sorts. It kind of prepared me for, mm -hmm. you know, um, publishing traditionally with, with a big house and, and, and you know, um, and, and, you know, working with deadlines and having benchmarks and all those sorts of things, because um, you really have to be self-motivated to, to, to write. Um, I'm, I'm sure you can attest to that, Danielle. Um, you, yeah. you really have to be driven. Oh, totally, yeah. What um, you mentioned, Skynet, Goonies, and Sandlot in your in in your uh, in your last couple answers. So, do yeah. movies definitely are they a source of motivation? Are they a source of inspiration? And if so, what are your go-to movies for inspiration? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that you know I thought maybe one day I would you know um, find some way to sort of work in film. I, I really loved screenwriting as a medium. Um, so yes, absolutely, movies have been um, a huge inspiration in my writing. I have a really interesting, um, so many interesting elements, I feel like, to my childhood. Um, and, and one of those things is that my parents, my dad, introduced me and my sisters to a lot of interesting movies at a very young age. Um, he was one of the uh, first adopters of Laserdisc movies, which- Oh my wow. goodness. Wow. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a friend yep. that collected Laserdiscs. He yes. built a whole shelf in his house. He was like, this is the next big thing. And I was like, oh, Snookums, you weren't around yes. when VHS and Beta fought and each beta, other. Yes, that's what so I was thinking, exactly. this may not be the best plan. I mean, he bought every Laserdisc yes. that came out. And I was like, Oh, you're not waiting for it. We haven't waited for the whatever inevitable eruption between the two. Right. And right. I'm like, these are huge, so I don't think they're going to win. But whatever. That's <laughs> so. I feel like a that's a theme with with uh, with laser disc owners. They all felt like it was they were all super passionate about. It. And I remember my dad had this huge collection of laser disc movies, and he would pull them out whenever we had guests over. And um, I don't know if you guys remember, but. Um, they used to, there were some movies, some studios would uh, distribute these beautiful packaging for some yes. movies. Like I, I remember we had Jurassic Disney Park. Disney was big like that Disney too. did it. Um, Jurassic Park, like it, it opened up like a book. And mm -hmm. of course these were vinyl record sized, you know. Uh, yep. um, and so, it, you know, it was huge. So anyway, we had lots of really cool, you know, really cool movies that probably eight, nine, 10 year olds shouldn't be watching. Like um, I, I saw Edward Scissorhands at a really um, young age, mm -hmm. uh, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands, yes. which had a huge impact on me. Um, I don't remember if I saw it in its entirety, but I have memories of seeing snippets of David Lynch's Eraserhead. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Which again, no, 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 no young kid has any business no. <laughs> watching that. No, um, no. I remember seeing Darkman. So anyway, oh, um, yeah, an another kind of, you know, wow. intense movie. Um, but my dad, my, my, my dad specifically, they just, they loved pop culture. They loved music. They loved movies. And so that was always on and, and always a big focus in, in our house. And I feel like that fed my, my creativity. Um, but I like all kinds of movies. I mean, um, I, obviously, I, I really love, you know, science fiction and fantasy. Arrival was a great fantasy movie that mm -hmm. came out a few years ago. Um, I really... Um, I really enjoy Guillermo del Toro. Uh, Pan, he wrote Pan's Labyrinth, you know, yes. and directed Pan's Labyrinth, which is, which is a great film. Um, and then, of course, I love the 80s. I mean, I feel like that 
decade is always in vogue, but um, all kinds of great movies that came out of that decade. Um, so I, yes, I, I, I love a smattering of all different kinds of, of movies and, and, and TV shows. Well, talk to us for a minute because you did self-publishing and now you are published with Macmillan? So it's it's actually a HarperCollins imprint. HarperCollins, yeah. okay. I know yeah. it was one of the two because we met at yeah. ALA, so which yeah. is the American Libraries Association Conference. We got mm -hmm. to hear you talk a little bit about it, but what? Yeah. how did that happen? How did that go into play? Yeah, so um, I have a really unique story, a really unique journey into traditional publishing in that um, I negotiated my book deal un unagented, which I know, you know, for those of you listening who don't know what the usual process is, it basically looks like you, you, you have your completed manuscript, then you take that and you query it to agents. So basically you do a bunch of research, you figure out, okay, which literary agents would I um, potentially, you know, be a good fit for and, and vice versa, who can I partner with? Um, so then you start the, the long you know, taxing process that is querying agents, you amass a impressive pile of rejection letters, we all do. Mm -hmm. um, and then that agent, once you you get an offer of rep, they then take your book out, your manuscript out on, on submission. And, and so, and then of course, once there's interest, then, you know, the, they, they, you know, the, the publisher, the acquiring editor will give you an offer and, and you know, and the rest is, is history. But, you know, I didn't have that journey. Um, and so, in a, in a lot of ways, I feel like self-publishing and having that sort of track record that, that you know that that follow-through, I think, showed the acquiring editor at my publisher that okay, you know, this author has follow-through. There, there's you know, he's serious. Um, and of course, the the genre in, in the, that I write in was you know something that they were looking to acquire. So um, I really feel like that helped and, and that positioned me, but. Basically, the short version of the story is I had an editor friend who I actually paid she uh, to, to proofread and edit my books. And then she pivoted from freelance to working at, at this particular publisher. She was in a nonfiction imprint. She called me up one day and said, hey, I'm probably going to be brushing shoulders with some of the fiction folks. You know, we should get one of your manuscripts in front of them. And that wow. was sort of my, wow. you know. My, my my foot in the door story. Um, and so I don't take for granted how unconventional that really is. Um, yeah. you know, it's not lost on me just how um, fortunate I am to have been able to, to get acquired through those through that way. Um, but now, you know, um, on the other side of it, um, I'm sort of doing, I'm sort of working backwards. Now I'm actually in the process of querying agents. So as oh, I'm looking cool. ahead, yeah, as I'm looking ahead to my next project, I want to be able to have, you know, an agent in my corner um, so that I don't have to worry about that aspect of it. So, no, that's cool. I mean, I think, you know, we talk to a lot of, of different people and I think agents can be great. I think they, you know, you have to find the right ones. You have to find good yeah. ones because they can also be a barrier to you getting your work out in the universe because they will do other things. Yeah. You well, know. absolutely. And, and, and you also have to consider, you know, um, for a lot of the big, big, big agencies, you may just be a number to them. You know, they have yes. a, a huge, deep roster of other authors that they're trying to, um, you know, provide a service for and, and that they're trying to champion for. 
Um, so I think that that is definitely something that should be taken into consideration when you're researching, you know, agents. Um, you know, are you just going to be sort of, you know, lost in in the in the numbers and and see. you know, are you going to have a, a lot of you know actual interface with with this particular agent? Um, lots of things to, to to consider for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So um, now you're traditional. What are are your self published books still out there? So unfortunately, they're not. And and we I had talks with my editor about this when we were working through the memory index, and we kind of decided that we wanted to position me as a debut author for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons was I had started a trilogy and I had only self-published two of the planned three books. Um, and so um, that third book is, um, I'd probably say 70% finished, I, I, it's probably 70% completed, but I just, I never went over the finish line with it. And so this, that story uh, is open-ended. Um, and so, um, so I do plan to revisit that at some point. But then the other thing is, you know, I didn't have an incredible team of proofreaders and editors working on my mm -hmm. early stuff. And so what I didn't want to happen was for someone to come across the memory index and read the description and think, oh, well, this sounds kind of cool. Maybe not necessarily at my alley, but I wonder what else the author has written. And then maybe they went on my Amazon author page, found something else, purchased that. And, you know, maybe the quality isn't quite up to par. Um, maybe, maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's a little inconsistent. I don't know. Um, and, and I would just hate for that to maybe turn them away from, from, you know, from reading, from reading, reading the memory index and, and, um, you know, maybe reading future works of mine. Um, so all that to say, we kind of decided, let's pull those off the, the digital shelves um, mm -hmm. and maybe mm -hmm. maybe revisit re-releasing those things. Interestingly, guys, it, this, this kind of blew my mind. I thought, okay, after I get traditionally published, maybe the next obvious progression of this is going into my back catalog and, and just re-releasing those, repackaging them through a major house. Um, but publishers are not keen on releasing yes. something that's been previously published, even if it was just self-published and sold a hundred copies for I'll whatever tell you, reason. That's not true with all publishers, because as a publisher, that's literally something I just I was just gonna say for authors. Do you have a back yep. catalog? Reach out to us and let us know. Yeah. Only because there are numbers that go with this, and it's something um ironically that's come up on the last couple of podcasts. Mm. And I realized we need to take a break. So no cliffhanger, but we'll be right back with the numbers and why I say that. So we'll be right back on Journey with Authors. You know what now is a good time for? It's time for a promo for the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. The Cosmic Pizza Podcast, you say? Mmm, that sounds delicious. What is that? It's a delicious slice of life. In every episode? In every episode, where we talk about conspiracy theories, Cartoons of our childhood. Star Trek quizzes. Movies that we've liked. Hard racing. General pop culture. Fantasy recasts. But what we don't talk about is pizzas. Right here on the ESO Network. Our sponsor today on Drinking with Authors is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Skunk Brothers Spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits. Their name was inspired by their pops, who was nicknamed Skunk. 
Gunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Bros Inc. Or visit their site www.skunkbrotherspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to read 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brother Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget to get skunked. Okay, we're back, cliffhanger. Dun, dun, dun. So here's the thing, there are some numbers and it's not, like a lot of people don't realize that only about 10% of New York Times bestselling authors, I'm doing air quotes, um, mm -hmm. actually make a profit on their book. It's very low. And um, if you want to make money as an author, you really don't start seeing the juice worth the squeeze until you have at least six books out. Mm. Then they say, if you really want it as a living, you have to go between 26 and 40 books on the shelves, which means you have to have a backlist because mm -hmm. they'll buy your book, your first book, but then they go, okay, I want more by this person. And then there's nothing else. And unfortunately with most traditionally published books, and I think it's great when somebody can get traditionally published, if that's the route they want to go is um, it takes years. Like, even if they want book two, book two is not going to come out in, I don't know, hypothetically six months, like we do it. Book two is going to come out maybe two or three years and you lose an audience like that. Like, yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize that there are numbers and yes, you can be more successful. And I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to the rule and stuff like that, but generally yeah. this is what you need to do. So releasing that back catalog would be huge for you once it's cleaned up and up to the par that you want it to be because that. you'll you'll keep them more you'll keep them on the hook more like we were talking about that with danielle we actually mm -hmm. absorbed danielle after she had published her first book right yep. but we're like yes you're doing all this promo which is great look at her she looks fantastic but you're doing it on one book yeah and yep. people want to keep they, it they met button. me through through the podcast and signed me through the podcast and took me from previous that's, publisher so that's awesome i'm actually an example of exactly you're a testimony. what you're talking about yes. and now i'm on book four in my first novella with them so you know and we're discussing even a linear publishing doing something in graphic novels that might be something oh, to consider that's so you know cool. and doing and going back and taking something like the memory index and maybe turning into a graphic novel or a different you know an avenue for your readers who you know yeah. this way you could clean it up and take it into a different uh, type of, you know, well, way. Yeah, no, I mean, that's super encouraging because those those early books, I, I, I'm i still incredibly proud of them and, I, and um, they, they hold a special place in my heart. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you think about, you know, previous writings, previous art that you've created, this is true of any medium, 
when you revisit it, it, um, it triggers so many emotions and, and so many memories about maybe where you were at in that period of life. Um, and so, you know, I, all that to say, I, I would love for an opportunity to, to revisit that, that, that back catalog. So it's encouraging to hear you say that that's something that just because one publisher says that that's not something that they want to prioritize or that that's not feasible doesn't mean that all publishers are going to have that approach. I think that's really important and something, I think that's an interesting aspect for authors in general because we're judged by what we did at one point in time and the mistakes yeah. we've made or sure. things we've learned. And then we can fix it in book two, book three, or the next series, but we're still judged by that first book. So I understand yeah. not wanting people to see it because they go back and go, well, what did he do here? <laughs> yeah, and then they're judged, you're judged moving forward. So it's hard yeah. to redo it. But if you have a chance to put out, as I did with these guys, a second edition. Yeah. and fix and tweak, it's always yeah. interesting to kind of go moving forward. But yeah. what have you learned, you think, since you've since the memory index, how has your writing changed and what have you learned moving forward? So um, I think a, a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind, and, and I think this is like anything else, but um, you know, as, as you continue to work on, you know, on your craft, you just, you just get better, you know, you just get more confident, um, the, the skills are, are sharpened. Um, and so, you know, from self-publishing through my journey into traditional publishing, working with, you know, a, a team, I think I, I, I can look back and say, you know, wow, okay, I, I can actually pinpoint actual growth in my craft. Um, and so, so that's definitely one thing. And then the other thing too is, um, you know, you, when you're self-publishing, um, you know, there is, at least this was my experience, there was an urgency to get the story done, get it in, an, in a proofreader and an editor's hands, get their feedback, tweak it, and get it out the door. Um, there's a lot of hurrying up and waiting in traditional publishing. Um, I'm, I'm sure you can, you know, attest to this, Danielle. Um, and so, but that's actually been really good for me because it's taught me patience. It's taught me how to sit with things. So it's like, you know, on the one hand, you're under a deadline and you have to make decisions and you have to make choices. And that sort of becomes, you know, that sort of impacts your, your creative process. On the other hand, there's a lot of waiting in the in-between. Um, mm -hmm. And so I actually think that that's had a positive impact on me as, as a writer. Um, I think it was Lev Grossman, uh, the author of The Magicians. I think yes. he's, he, he is credited as saying, one of the best things that a writer uh, can do for their story is once they've completed the manuscript, lock it up in a safe and then don't open it up again for as long as humanly possible because yes. the, sep the separation between typing the end and when you actually you know, revisit it is actually going to be hugely um, beneficial to you know, making that story the best it absolutely can be. Do you think you've learned anything just aside from yourself as a writer, mm -hmm. but as a person, especially going back and taking pieces of your childhood and implementing them into the story, oh. what have you learned about yourself as a person and a human being as you've gone oh. through the journey? That's such a great question. Um, I think the biggest thing that I struggle with, and I don't know if this is anything that I'll ever fully sort of grow out of or shake is um, definitely imposter's syndrome. Just this, mm -hmm. this sense of like, I don't, why am I, why me? Like, I don't deserve to be at the table. Like, 
there are far better writers out there who, for whatever reason, it's just not clicking. The agents aren't biting. They're just not, and, and they're unpublished. Why me? Why am I published? Um, and so I think the, to answer your question, the biggest growth that I've sort of experienced is I think, um, you know, overcoming insecurities and, and you know, um, just being uh, pr really proud of, of the work that I've done and, and um, you know, having that sense of self-confidence. Um, you know, it's just not really in my nature to go out on social media and, and sort of, you know, boast or proclaim about, you know, exciting things. And, you know, obviously I, I do that for the book and my publisher has been really encouraging me to, to do that um, a lot more consistently. But uh, yeah, I guess I would say, you know, being comfortable with self-confidence, not, not, not and, and, but, but balancing that obviously with humility, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. Do you feel that you've connected more with your heritage as you've taken this journey more? Are you going down that path and trying to find that connection more? Have more people spoken to you and fans come forward to kind of identify with maybe they didn't have that connection with their own heritage? Absolutely. Um, I, I had a really cool, um, I have a really cool story about, about um, the memory index and, and getting feedback from, from one of my, one of my aunts, one of my theas. She lives in, um, so my mom's one of nine and all of her uh, siblings live in, in California still. And um, my, one of, one of my, my theas, she's, um, she was in education and she's very learned, very, very smart, very, very brilliant. Um, and so, because, you know, I don't speak Spanish, um, just very, very broken Spanish, I wanted to have my character, you know, use certain Spanish sayings and, and you know, have certain, you know, phrases. And I wanted to pepper her internal dialogue um, with some authenticity. And so I sent my, my, my Thea, Teresa, the, the manuscript, and we were able to go through it together. And, and she, you know, made sure that all of my uses of, of different, you know, Spanish sayings and phrases were accurate. Um, and so that was a really cool, you know, bonding experience. Um, real quick, are you guys hearing any feedback from me? No, and I'm sorry, I disappeared for a moment. My internet is delightful up in the mountain. <laughs> it's like, you know what, I'm just done working for today. And I'm, but we're not. So it's super fun. Okay, okay good. I, I, sorry, I didn't know if, if maybe you guys were picking something up. I heard a little bit of scratching. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, Danielle, um, yes, it was, it was a really, there was a really cool exercise there of just, you know, going back and, um, you know, learning and, and maybe relearning certain things about my heritage and um, sort of infusing that in, into the manuscript. I think that's really cool. I'm half Puerto Rican. And I was told the same thing, you know, we're, you're here, uh, you speak English. My grandmother never spoke Spanish. She's from old San Juan and they never spoke Spanish in the house. So, and my mother did speak Spanish and it wasn't until we got lost in Santa Domingo that my father finally looked at her and said, you need to speak Spanish and get us the hell out of here. Cause they were throwing <laughs> hot peanuts at us. Oh gosh. And we were in the Capitol getting lost. And finally my mother wow. said something in Spanish and got us out. And my father was like, was that so difficult? But we never spoke Spanish now. Nothing. I mean, I, I took Spanish in high school. I mm. failed it. Um, but you know, and I went back and spoke Spanish once to my grandmother mm. and she looked at me, she went, that's not Spanish. She's like, don't yeah. ever do that again. And she was like, no, don't, don't, 
she's like, you're murdering the language. Don't ever do that. But uh, I never identified because, you know, mm. it was always like, don't tell anybody you're Puerto Rican. Like, shh, don't, yeah. you know. So I could, when you were saying that, I totally, I, I got mm. what you were saying was just this attitude of, you know, yeah. not really knowing and not identifying with yeah. one way or the other and, and how do you get it? And I actually wound up writing in one of my stories coming up the protagonist is half Italian, half Puerto Rican. And somebody says, you're short. And she goes, no, I'm just half Italian, half Puerto Rican. I talk with my hands, but I don't understand what I'm saying. And it's kind of, you know, That's not great. getting it, but always wanting to explore that side. Have you decided mm -hmm. to take any Spanish classes or do anything just to kind of jump into that and explore a little bit more to go down that? Or have you decided, I'm just going to leave it alone. It's good where it is. I'm good. <laughs> No, it's a great question. Uh, so, so the answer is yes, I absolutely, and uh, in, fully intend to to learn um, to learn Spanish. And the way that we're going to do it is actually with our kiddos. And so, uh, my wife, my wife, she's white, and so you know, with our kids being mixed, uh, we really want to embrace and sort of, you know, the, the I feel like the pendulum always swings the other way with with the gen with our generations. Um, and so, my mom, who um, all you know was it's just a, a, a you know an educator you know her whole adult life taught you know um, uh, as Spanish taught you know I mean she just all kinds of different courses throughout elementary middle and high school uh, grade levels but anyway so she's retired now and so the thinking is once our kiddos get to the appropriate age um, she's going to start teaching them Spanish and my wife and I want to be very much involved in that process so it'll be sort of all of us collectively uh, learning together. The only reason we haven't done it quite yet is because our oldest um, has a speech delay, and um, and so he's uh, he's seven years old, and um, for the first you know couple of years of elementary school, we were just trying to make sure that he was confident in English and he was overcoming those sort of barriers first. Um, but now that he's sort of closing the gap and he's getting more confident with um, reading and writing in English. Um, I feel like within the next year or two, we're all going to sort of jump into that as a family. Oh, that's great. Uh -huh. Erica, I feel like I'm totally taking this no, over. I'm so I don't want to do that. You exited and came back. It's totally fine. <laughs> Take over. You, you look more awesome than I do anyway. So go for I'm it. I'm Barbara Waltering it. So I was like, uh oh, I'm going to sit back. Yeah, no, you're perfect. I do have a question about um, what has surprised you on traditional versus self publishing? Like, what? were you like wow i had no idea that was coming at me yeah great question definitely the first thing that comes to mind is titling so i think i had it in my head where you write a you write a book you have your manuscript and you have your title and it's like those are inseparable i mean that's there one you can't have one without the other um and like within the first couple of months after signing uh, after I delivered my manuscript, my editor said, all right, so um, by the way, just want to let you know, we're going to have a titling meeting with the, with the, with the whole team. Um, so feel free to send me your, your, your wish list, you know, of, of titles. And I was thinking, wait, what? I, I thought, I thought the title of the book was set in stone and it kind of threw me off. I got kind of anxious because the title of the book was originally the memory engine. Um, and they had uh, some concerns that that was too masculine and that that wouldn't appeal um, to, you know, female readers. 
Um, really interesting, really interesting. And so uh, I thought, okay, uh, this is, so that really surprised me. Now to my editor and, and the team, to their credit, I sent like a very detailed list. I was like, all right, if I'm gonna get a say in this, I'm gonna have a say in this. <laughs> so, so I made my, my wish list and, and prioritized it by my absolute favorite all the way to the least favorite. Um, and, and we ended up deciding together on the memory index. Um, so that was probably the first, the first thing. Uh, and then the second thing was, and I know it's different at every publisher, um, but I was very surprised at how um, willing my team was to let me be involved in the cover. So, yeah, so um, I've heard, uh, I've got a, 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 um, an author friend who's, who's published uh, with Penguin and he said he doesn't he didn't see his covers until like way down the line until they were like all right what's your favorite of these two or three my editor said why don't you send us a mood board send us some covers that you like what are some design elements that you like and dislike and so i was surprised at how much they let me contribute to that conversation i'm very very pleased with the final product for sure that's very cool because most people on both of those accounts do not have nice stories to tell about their, what no. they encountered with that. You know what I mean? No, no, not at all. I've, I've got another author friend too, who I should connect you guys with. She's got her debut coming out um, through um, Mindy's book studio. So it's Mindy Kaling's uh, new imprint with Amazon. Um, she's yeah. got her debut her coming book. out next yeah, yeah. Her, so her book's called I'll Stop the World. It's, it's, a, it's YA, comes out in April. Um, but I was actually just texting with her yesterday. And I was like, so when are we going to see the cover? And she was like, I haven't seen it. I don't, I haven't seen anything. <laughs> Which April feels like not that long from, away in, in publishing. You no, know? It's, it's not, especially <laughs> whenever, when are they putting it up for pre-order? It's available for pre-order. It just says cover to be revealed soon or something like that. Interesting, right? Oh, wow. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it could very well be this is, um, she's only this, she was only the second, I think, book acquired on it, through this imprint. So they're, I think they're pr probably still trying to find their footing. Well, it's true, but that's, that's weirdness. That's weirdness. Because I hate to say, you do judge a book by its cover. You do. I was, you, yeah. Like you judge a book by its cover. And so if you do not have the right cover on the book or you don't even have a cover on the book, you're not going to get pre-sales really. I mean, it's a, it's a really good point. I think, especially in this day and age where there's so much vying for our attention. I mean, it's like stimulation overload everywhere we go. And so you want something visually arresting, something that's going to, you know, in, intrigue someone. So I, yeah, that's a really good point. It's, it's, an, it's interesting. Okay. What do you, what kind of environment do you write in? So you, you used to write pre having children and stuff and having small people around you changes writing things. So what is your, when do you write, what is your writing environment like? Yeah. So um, right now, um, I balance writing with um, with a full-time job. I work in uh, marketing for um, a really cool music licensing company in East Nashville. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a full-time remote job. Um, and they have been incredible supporters and advocates for, for my book and for, you know, my novel writing pursuits. It is great. I, I've worked in other environments where if you do something outside of what you were hired to do, it's a threat. 
it's not something that's celebrated. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I have support and buy-in from my team is, is incredible. So right now it's a lot of writing in the margins. It's a lot of early morning, cup of coffee, 500 words, uh, lunch break, you know, scarfing, you know, a sandwich at my desk, 250 words. And then late into the evening, you know, after spending time with my family and everyone's gone to bed, you know, maybe another 700, 750 words. Um, it's not ideal, obviously, um, because I know, I don't know if you're like this, Danielle, or you guys, if you've spoken with other writers who are like this, but there's, when you're writing, there's almost like a ramp up period. So it's, it's like, you almost need like two hours, three hours, where that first 30 minutes or, or maybe even longer is just staring at the page and just figuring out what you want to say. Then you start writing, then there's the snowball effect, then you start writing, then you get into like a nice groove. And so there's that ramp up period. Um, and, and then inevitably there's always this sort of wind down period. Um, and so I had to sort of kind of adjust my, my process and, and my workflow. Um, but in a lot of ways it's challenged me and it's pushed me out of my comfort zone. And so writing, writing in spurts has really um, helped me become more efficient or efficient and more economical uh, with my time. Well, I think also as you grow as a writer and you do more writing, not that you, there's a lot of people that have habits and stuff like that, but I think mm -hmm. you also can end up um, with finding ways to hit that ramp quicker like not necessarily having, I mean, some people have to have it, um, but it's like being able to hit that ramp a little quicker when you're going for it and going, okay, good. Do you listen to music while you write? You know, it depends on the scene. So I will say, I, I will say 90% of the time I have to write in silence or, or, oh. or, or coffee shop chatter. Like I can do that. There is that occasional 10 to 15% of the time where it's nice to have some ambient sort of atmospheric music kind of playing in the background. I really like uh, listening to Slow Meadow. Um, I really like listening to, um, there's another uh, artist, uh, they're called Hammock. Um, you can find these artists on Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon. Um, but anyway, it has to be atmospheric ambient music if I am going to be writing with it. Um, I can't do music with, you know, vocals though. I, very few people can. I know a few, really? but very few people can because the, I, I, I tell people this all the time. When I'm writing, I listen to Celtic music. I listen awesome. to Celtic fairy music all the time because there aren't any words. Yeah. And there are words. I write with a soundtrack. I don't I know you too. And I know like that yeah. stuff does. <laughs> But the problem is, is that if I hear the words, one, if it's a song I like, I'll start singing it because I'm that person that regardless yeah. where I am, I'm singing, but then I'm getting into the song and not into what I'm writing. And so there's a lot of people, I know you look shocked, but there's a lot of people who do that, Danielle. I got RuPaul's Drag Race going half the time while I'm, <laughs> while I'm writing. I, 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 I don't know how you write in silence. I can't. I don't know. The voices silent. in my head get too loud. There yeah. it is. That's why. I've yeah. heard that from a lot of authors. There are some that are like, I cannot have any interruption at all. And I'm so used to just noise and noise around me. Like, I loved writing in coffee shops back 
pre-pandemic yes. and, um, and stuff yes. because I like the noise of the people around me and things like that. I absolutely love that. It's just, you know. I do too. I, and and it's, it's a bit of a cliche, I know, but there is something, there is a kind of synergy when you're at a coffee shop and there's other creatives around and there's there's the hustle and bustle of, you know, people at the, you know, at the queue get ordering their coffee. And there is something about that that you kind of feed off of. Um, I would say, like, given the choice between, you know, writing in the home office or writing at a coffee shop, I would definitely pick the coffee shop. Um, oh, so, yeah. And also, I'm just a huge lover of good coffee. Like, I love good coffee. Uh, I love to consume it. I love to have you know meetings over coffee it's just it's one of my love languages <laughs> no, no i think it's great okay danielle we're gonna have to wrap up this podcast so i'm gonna give you the fake queen final question nice i would no like pressure. to know no 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 pressure oh, i think it's the horns today uh, <laughs> I, it's got to be the horns when in doubt go with the horns uh, how do you deal with criticism I think it's something that all authors, you know, we always get the usual, the proverbial, you have to have a tough skin, but how do you deal with criticism? Like, do you, do you stay away from Goodreads or do you just dive right in and just take it on the chin? It's a great question. I had um, an author friend who, who said Goodreads, he, this, is, this is how he defined Goodreads. He said, it's an incredible place, an incredible tool for readers. It's the worst for authors. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was a really good point because it is a great place to, you know, have your digital shelves rate and create lists and recommendations and everything. But then as an author, if you get on there, it's, it can be a slippery slope of, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I, it's, here's, here's what I try to remember, that you're not going to please everyone. And, and one of the best examples of that is just pick any author who is just beloved, a, a household name go to the, one of their most recent works on Goodreads and you will inevitably find all kinds of people who have one, two star reviews and they're just ripping it to shreds. And it, it might perplex us. Like what, how are you finding this much issue, taking this much issue with, you know, with this particular, I mean, they're, they're a New York Times bestseller. So Sometimes I'll just remind myself that, that that's the reality in, in, in which we live, that you're just not going to be um, able to please everyone. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely not something that, because I, I definitely still continue to struggle with insecurity. I mentioned earlier that, you know, I have that imposter syndrome that, I, that I'm still trying to navigate. Um, but I, try, I just try to remind myself, like, look, ultimately, you just can't please everyone. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's what I try to remember. <laughs> that's kind of my North star in that, in that respect. I think that's awesome. It's true. I always tell people, if you really want to see, go look up hunger games and just click on the one star reviews. from Monday. Yes. Exactly. Oh, I've done, yeah. Deborah Harkness. I've looked up. I always yeah. say, I feel like yeah. Goodreads is it. I describe it as if you were walking down the street as a woman and you wanted to know what everybody thought of your outfit. That's good. Oh, reads. Wow. Like you yeah. wouldn't want to know. You don't want to know no. what other women think of what you're wearing. So don't go on Goodreads as an author. That's kind of what it tells you. It's like reading people's yeah. minds. Sometimes yeah, you just point. don't want to know. No, I think that's true. I think one thing reviews can be good for, and we, you know, we talk about reviews on this show, but one, you have to have thick skin to read reviews. Mm -hmm. The only thing I think they can be useful for is 
not the one star, two star, look at the four star, five star, and mm -hmm. hear what people liked about the book, what characters mm -hmm. that they enjoyed and stuff yes. like that. Because we're in our heads so much that we may think a character is amazing and awesome. And then you go and read it and they like some sub character that was just a plot yes. device for you. And then you have to take that character, maybe if you want to, and create a novella or something about that character or entwine Agreed. them in the next book a little more because you never know what is going to be the one thing that people enjoyed the most. You hope it's you know? the main things, but that happens all the time where people are like, I like Bob, the you chauffeur. Know. And you're like, seriously? Why did you like you Bob the chauffeur? He's a plot device and everybody's like, he's the best. And you're like, okay, cool. I'll Bob's getting his own Bob. book. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting? Um, sorry, I know we need to wrap up, but uh, this is something we didn't even get into to that point. Um, so the, the sequel, so Memory Index is a duology and the story continues and concludes in the, in the second book, in, which is set to release in April of next year. And so I'm currently um, working through sub-edits on, on the second book. And I've been able to see that there have been a couple of people, a few people on Goodreads who have said, I really liked it. The, the beginning was awesome. The end blew me away. Um, the pace kind of dropped off a little bit in the middle, and but otherwise, blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, okay, interesting. So they had concerns about the pacing. So yes. how can I take that feedback in a positive way and um, you know, just keep that in mind as I'm working through the second book. Yeah, and so and, and not a lot of authors are are, are afforded that, um, you know, because but again, with this being a series, that was a unique thing where book one's about the pub. Goodreads reviews are starting to trickle in. I can take some of those and and you know and and use it to kind of inform how I'm revising book two. So that's okay. neat. No, I think that's right. Okay, tell our audience um your book titles and yeah. how to find um you as an author on social media yeah so um the my book that's publishing next month is called the memory index and that's available for pre-order and then the sequel is called the recall paradox and that is also available for pre-order as well um and you guys can follow me on instagram my um account is uh julian ray vaca so j-u-l-i-a-n R-A-Y, and then V as in Victor, A-C-A. -A. Um, and that's the best way to, to connect with me because that's probably where, I, I guess I just, I end up posting most on, on Instagram. And I do have a TikTok, but I don't post on there as much as I probably ought to. Do you have a <laughs> newsletter that people can follow? No, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting one set up. So in August or September, maybe, maybe, Maybe if you do a social post on this down the road, at that point, I'll have one set up and we can plug it. What's your website? JulianRayVaca.com. So just like my Instagram handle, but .com. Well, if it's going to be ready then, then when this yeah. comes out, it will be ready. So go subscribe to his newsletter on yes. his website. Very cool. It's been <laughs> wonderful having you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you guys so much. This was a blast. Any opportunity to get to talk with other writers over beer is a really, really good time.
Yes, yes, that's the reason we invented such a thing. Um, but this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you, of course, Fairy Queen, for being my co-host today. Um, this As is Queen with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. Danielle Orsino was my co-host, the Fairy Queen. Julian Baca has been our guest. And um, Skunk Brother Spirits has been our, um, oh my goodness, sponsor. I can use my entire brain. Yay, wine. Um, DWA is the coupon code. We'll see you guys next time. Like and subscribe. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.